Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Ruth Edwards, Member of Parliament for Rushcliffe. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Conservative Environment Network's webinar here on restoring global nature. We hear a lot about COP26, but there are actually three international summits this year that will be critical to the future of our planet. A month before COP26 is the UN Convention on Biodiversity, or for those who like their acronyms, CBD COP15. And then in August, we have the final intergovernmental conference for a global oceans treaty. The stakes really couldn't be higher. We know that wildlife populations have fallen by two thirds since 1970 and a quarter of all species now face extinction. And here with me to discuss how the UK can demonstrate international leadership at these summits, how we can secure a stretching set of biodiversity targets and a strong global oceans treaty. I have an all-star cast. I've got Lord Zach Goldsmith, International Environment Minister, His Excellency Malik Amin Aslam, Pakistan's Federal Minister for Climate Change and Special Assistant to Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan, Sajid Javid, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, who put in place the parameters for the Dasgupta Review on the economics of biodiversity, Kate Norgrove, the Executive Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at WWF UK, and sends International Ambassador Stanley Johnson, a former Conservative MEP who's won numerous awards for his work on the environment from Greenpeace, WWF and the RSPB. I'm going to ask each of our panellists to share their ideas with us for a couple of minutes and I know Zach has to leave at half past so I'll then give him a few minutes to respond to points raised by other speakers before opening up to your questions. So Zach, handing the baton to you, what are the UK government's ambitions for these critical summits? How can we secure um, you know, ambitious targets both in Kunming and also a strong global oceans treaty? Okay, th thank you very much indeed. Um, and I apologize that I have to leave after half an hour. Um, I, I'm not gonna rehearse all the gloomy facts and figures because by and large, we know them. I mean, you mentioned a million species facing extinction. I've just made, mentioned one is that we're losing around uh, the equivalent of 30 football pitches worth of forest every single minute. So if I keep to my time, that's 60 or 90, depending on whether I go to three minutes. Um, it's, it's, you, don't, you know, there's masses of scientific evidence telling us where this path is taking us, but you don't need to be an expert to understand that, that if these trends continue, we're gonna be paying an absolutely terrible price. Um, and you know, we've seen in the last year and a half, the pandemic has claimed millions of lives, it's destroyed economies all over the place, but we know based on everything we know, that the cost of continued destruction of natural systems and destabilization of the climate is gonna dwarf the costs of COVID many, many times over. And although we might be able to delay the impact on us a little bit, it, it, none of us can insulate ourselves from the effects of degrading the natural world. The poorest will be hit first, of course, because they tend to depend more directly on the free services that nature provides, those services which we're currently grubbing out at the most extraordinary rate. So there's nothing more important than turning this around. We're seeing progress in terms of carbon. I know that's not the purpose of this discussion, but it is worth saying we're seeing progress in terms of carbon. The market for clean energy, the clean energy transitions, racing ahead of the politics, exceeding all expectations, exceeding all predictions, but that's not happening in any way, in meaningful sense with nature. And that has to change because technology is not going to save the day. We can't get to net zero without nature. We know that. Nature-based solutions will provide about a third of the solution, probably a lot more than that, and most cost-effectively, forests, mangroves, so on and so forth. 
So the UK has put nature at the heart of its climate agenda, rightly so. Um, and on the back of that commitment, we've uh, committed to doubling our international climate finance, spending nearly a third of that climate finance on nature-based solutions, trying to get other countries to do the same. France is now with us on that. We think Canada and a number of other, Norway and a number of other countries, perhaps Germany, will do likewise. On the back of that commitment, we're creating a, a pipeline of really exciting new programs, a hundred million pound biodiverse landscapes fund to link threatened uh, uh, landscapes and create jobs for people who live in and around them on a really big scale. Uh, the, uh, a new 500 million pound Blue Planet Fund, which is a world first as far as I know, helping to uh, help uh, helping communities fight off uh, a multitude of threats facing their own ocean environments. We're trebling funding for the Darwin Initiative, we're ramping up our funding for the illegal wildlife trade campaigns, but we're prioritizing forests and we're building right now a partnership that exceeds by many factors anything that we have seen so far, working with a number of other countries and private sector. The good news is that we know that protecting nature works. You only have to look at Costa Rica. They've doubled their rainforest in a generation, put more than half their country under canopy. They're growing their economy alongside their biodiversity. We know marine protected areas work. That's why we're continuing to grow our blue belt, which is on track, actually not on track. It is already protecting an area bigger than India. Uh, we are leading efforts to protect 30% of the world's land and ocean by 2030. We've got a uh, which was signed off today by the G7. We're about to hear in 20 minutes. You've heard it first. Um, and in the run-up to the biodiversity conference that China is hosting, I think we're doing more heavy lifting than any other country in the world. And uh, what we're pushing for is not just ambitious targets. Targets come and go and governments ignore them, but mechanisms that will hold governments to account. And in addition to that, we're calling for finance, not just public finance, although that matters. We need governments to identify the levers they control to shift the incentives. The top 50 food producing countries spend $700 billion a year subsidizing often destructive land use. If we can get those countries to do what we're doing with our subsidy system, you've got a solution right there. That could flip the market in favor of sustainability. So this is a major part of our COP campaign. And finally, we're using, not finally, we're using our leverage as one of the biggest contributors to the multilateral aid system, which even despite the cut to ODA, we're still the third biggest donor, uh, to call on the big multilateral development banks to align their portfolios with nature. There's no point in them boasting about their investments in nature or climate here and there if the rest of their portfolios take us in the opposite direction. We want them to go nature positive, um, as we're trying very hard to do here in the UK. And I'll leave the domestic story to others, but we have got an enormous amount to do. No government in the world is doing enough, but we are absolutely determined to step up. Um, we want this to be the year, finally, we reconcile or begin to reconcile our economies with nature. We want to turn the tide. Thank you, Zach. Amin, turning to you, can you tell us more about the work that Pakistan is doing to restore nature domestically? And what are your priorities for the negotiations in Kunming later this year? Yes, thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me to this uh, very interesting uh, uh, talk by the uh, Conservative Network. And it was uh, started off by uh, Lord Goldsmith, and whatever Zach said is really music to my ears. Uh, I think we, uh, as a government in Pakistan, really believe in this pathway of nature positive that he just talked about. And I think uh, what we've seen in this really tough times of the COVID is that uh, there is no other pathway uh, possible in the 21st century. Uh, we, we cannot fight with nature. We've tried to do that and we've seen nature strike back. We've seen uh, the pandemic come up uh, as a zoonotic disease, biodiversity loss, climate change. They're all manifestations of this fight with nature that we cannot win. We have to turn the tide. We have to turn the direction. 
and take a U-turn with nature, I think. Uh, the good news is that uh, the world is waking up to that U-turn. Uh, I was reading in The Economist just yesterday that there's been this survey done which shows that the awareness about environment uh, from the bottoms up has really doubled during the COVID era. And that's, a, that's the real push which is going to change things all over the world. Uh, and when we talk about building back better, building back green, uh, I think that's, that's uh, where the push is coming from. Uh, Pakistan, uh, as you asked uh, uh, about Pakistan, we really in the midst of the first wave, we decided that, uh, you know, this is not a winnable fight. We don't need to uh, fight this fight with nature. We didn't need nature on our side. And we started what was called the Green Stimulus Program. And the Green Stimulus was basically focused on two things. One is we need to protect nature. The other one is that we need to do it and create green jobs. And successfully, we did that. Uh, it had two, three parts. The main part was we had this 10 billion tree project going on. We injected more money into it, more focus into it to create as much jobs as possible. And we created about 85,000 jobs for daily wages who were out of job uh, during the lockdown, lockdown periods. These were people who were putting up nurseries, uh, fighting forest fires, uh, you know, protecting uh, community forests. They were all getting jobs and they're getting paid for it. Uh, that really created a big momentum. And we added on to that by what we call the Protected Areas Initiative. This was an initiative to expand our protected areas, create new national parks, and create a national park service to go with it, which could employ our youth into green jobs. So, you know, both these are going on really fast track in Pakistan. They are creating green jobs and they're putting us on a nature positive pathway. I just wanted to take a minute to talk about how do we finance all of this transition. And Pakistan has tried very different innovative instruments. Uh, we launched what was called the Ecosystem Restoration Fund. It was launched in Madrid at the COP meeting, but it really got its first injection of money during the COVID era from the World Bank. We got about $180 million repurposed for nature protection. And that money is going to be injected starting June onwards into, again, uh, uh, activities which will protect nature, also create jobs uh, during the COVID era. We've also, we are also going to launch our first green euro bond, uh, which is going to happen next week. It's a $500 million uh, euro uh, 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 bond, which is going to be launched for uh, pushing hydropower development uh, uh, into our equation. Uh, and thirdly, uh, we are looking at debt for nature swaps. So uh, what Jack just talked about, talked about that we, they want you know, governments to be uh, actually doing something on nature. Uh, we have created, uh, we have talked about this instrument of debt for nature swap. We've had some uh, interest from countries and we are moving ahead with that. I would like to finally, uh, you know, thank the UK government for really uh, giving us leadership with the Das Gupta report. I think it came as a, as a beacon of hope uh, in, a, in a time, really challenging time of the COVID. And it, it really sent, sent a very strong signal to the world that the economic framework which got us to the 20th century is no longer tenable in the 21st century. We need to change that. And we took a cue from that and we have already in, in discussion with the UK government to launch a similar report in Pakistan. And we hope to be sign, signing the MOU within the next week to do that. So uh, Pakistan is really uh, on the nature positive pathway. And as I said, we've learned uh, that, and we've learned it uh, you know, before uh, we got uh, bit by nature that there is no other pathway uh, for the 21st century. Thank you.
Thank you so much. And, and staying with the Duskupta review and, and turning to Sajid Javid. Sajid, what do you think should be included in the Treasury's response to the review? And how do you think we can encourage other finance ministries to improve their natural capital accounting? Uh, thank you, Ruth. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure to follow after Zach and Amin. And I agree with everything that they've both said, but especially, uh, Amin, you just made the point about the Daskupta uh, review and the importance of that. And it really is a, 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 a landmark, a seminal uh, piece of work. And I'm glad that the, the UK uh, has uh, led uh, on that. And, and let me just explain why, very quickly, why it's so important. I mean, the report itself is like you know, some six, 700 pages long. And Ruth, you've given me two minutes to talk about it. And I'll try my very best. But what it really, what Daskupta really you know, brings out is that how our economy, our economies, whether Pakistan, Britain, the global economy, we are up and totally dependent on nature completely for every single thing we consume all the food we eat the water we drink the houses we live in the energy we heat our homes with all of us doesn't matter where we are that only exists because of nature and indeed as we have this consumption uh, everything that we consume we produce waste and that all that waste we are totally dependent on nature to to, to get rid of to manage uh, properly so that we are susceptible to less disease and and and, and issues uh, of that type so we're totally dependent on nature but as Das Gupta has, has brought out in his report, in, 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 in when I, uh, and I was so pleased to set some very ambitious terms of reference, which he and his team more than met, they really brought out all the facts and figures behind this about how we are consuming nature at an unprecedented uh, rate. And uh, I think he said that in his report that if we just consume at the current level that we have around the world, it, we would need some 1.6 planets and you know I, I, we've only got one planet i don't know another 0.6 planet that we're gonna soon be able to have so we really need to do something about this and why because uh, if we want to even let forget trying to improve our standard of living and of course we want to do that especially in developing countries like pakistan we want to see improved standards of living but just to maintain our standard of living there's no way that's going to happen unless we totally change our approach to nature and we see it very much in in an economic light uh, as well and uh, and that's the key uh, to this is to see nature uh, for what it is, is an asset. It's a huge economic asset. So think about the economic assets that we're used to, you know, um, capital, you know, whether it's roads and railways or infrastructure and things like that. We're used to seeing that kind of economic asset. And, you know, that has grown uh, since, uh, I think, 1992. Capital assets around the world have more than doubled, right? Also think of it as human capital. Yes, yeah, we invest in our fellow humans in, in, in the skills they have, for example, their intellect, their knowledge. You know, that capital is growing and that's great to see. We can all you know, make, you do more with that. It helps us not just economically, but in so many other ways. That capital is estimated by Daskupta to have grown by 16% your per person uh, since 92. But nature, uh, if we look at that as a capital, as a natural capital, that has declined by 40% since 1992 so declined uh, because we're consuming at an unprecedented rate so at the very heart of das Gupta, what it says is that we must see nature as an economic asset we must therefore start measuring it properly in our national accounts as an economic asset and 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 we'll see quickly how it's depleting and then that will lead to the changes we want to see the policies and be able to properly measure them in what we need to do next which is not just maintain 
the quality of nature that we have, that natural capital, but also how can we enhance it and, and grow that with other nature-based solutions or in other ways? I mean, there's a lot more to it about how we measure this in an economy, how we can get the ONS, for example, in the UK or other national statistical organizations to do this. But unless we start treating capital, uh, natural capital as an asset, as an economic asset, I'm afraid I can't see how we're gonna deal with this crisis, this potential crisis that we can properly avoid. Thank you. That was a very impressive summary of 700 pages in two minutes. I'm going to take notes for my next three minutes time limited speech in Parliament. <laughs> um, turning to Kate, can you tell us more about why nature based solutions and biodiversity is so important to tackling climate change? What more do you think the UK can do to lead by example? Mm. Can I just uh, start by saying thank you? And whilst it's an honour to speak on this panel because of everyone on it, I feel particularly honoured to speak after our former Chancellor because he was so pivotal to the publication of the extraordinary Dasgupta Review. Um, and I encourage you all to read uh, all 600 and something pages of it. Um, so I want to speak briefly about nature at COP15 and 26, and then make three points about the domestic agenda, which is so important. So in terms of COP15, the UK has a massive opportunity to lead the charge on a 10 year framework with the mission to reverse the catastrophic loss of nature by 2030. And this commitment is well documented in the leaders pledge for nature, which Lord Goldsmith ably led with others, and which is signed by over 80 presidents and prime ministers already. But it is yet to be translated into the negotiations which are happening right now up until the COP15 in October. So that's one thing that's really important. Fantastic breaking news, read the, the uh, G7 announcement, but the difference, there is a difference there between just preserving what we have and enabling nature to already recover by 2030. So that's what we need to get into COP15. Um, in terms of COP26, when talking about nature targets, everyone thinks of CBD, but that's obviously only, only one part of the picture. The UK needs to help secure greater recognition of the role that nature should play in mitigation and adaptation in COP26. And I know Lord Goldsmith and others are doing lots of work on that. Um, and then the challenge for leading by example at home. To be an international leader, the, the UK will need to really lead the way. And we are in many ways already. Um, I know that the Environment Bill, uh, long worked upon and long awaited and looked forward to, is coming back uh, next week. Um, we really welcome the announcement on a 2030 species target. And we look forward to seeing more detail on that. For WWF, it's really critical to get the species definition in that 2030 target right, not least to ensure that marine is included, but also to ensure that our overall ambition for it to go beyond just halting the loss and into restoration uh, by 2030 is in there. We need to bend that curve to make sure that we're starting to restore by 2030. A brilliant win there would be to embed the ambitions of the leaders pledge into the Environment Bill by incorporating a target to reduce our global environment footprint and a target to remove deforestation and conversion supply chains uh, by 2023. The second point on domestic agenda is about international leadership. Uh, global Britain could be a really incredible force for good on climate and nature, but that requires us to build world leading trading relationships that make us stronger and more resilient. Um, we all want the benefits that global can, trade can bring uh, post-Brexit, um, but as hosts of the G7 and as presidents of COP, we need to make sure that um, uh, a deal, uh, a bad deal before climate and nature uh, through a bad Australian trade deal doesn't happen. And on this, we should prioritise first, before the Australian detail, 
uh, deal, sorry, responding to the recommendations of the Trade and Agriculture Commission to establish in law a set of core standards for the environment, animal welfare and food safety. And then very lastly, coming back round to where uh, um, Honourable Sajid Javid started, which is in the economy. In this crucial year, the UK should commit to developing the world's first finance sector that aligns with the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement. Major, major finance institutions are signalling their appetite to move in this direction, um, but reform must be holistic, needing government to ensure a competitive regulatory framework which will build on the recent Bank of England announcement. So doing that as well would be truly, truly world leading. And uh, we know we're already working well and enjoying working with the government in this agenda and look forward to the next six months. Thank you so much, Kate. Um, finally, turning to Stanley. Um, Stanley, you've worked at the heart of uh, international organizations. Why in your view have previous international commitments to halt biodiversity loss failed? Um, how do you think we can make sure that they're a success and that they're adhered to this time around? One, one word, I think, um, Ruth, is implementation. You know, the words are out there, but we haven't, we haven't delivered on the ground. Yes, you mentioned my longstanding. I think about implementation, I go way back. It's wonderful to have the, the, the Pakistani High Commissioner, I mean, here. In the 60s, I worked on a wonderful um, energy projects in in Pakistan, the Mangler and Talbella Dam, um, most extraordinary. I don't think I realized then how important, how important they were. Yes, that is implementation is crucial. And on that point, for example, here we have, yes, we've just had this brilliant, you know, uh, pledge now by the government to put an environmental target in the, in the, in the, in the environment bill. But what is going to happen, really, really what's going to happen is how are we going to make sure we deliver that pledge? And having been years and years working on you know, for example, the habitats regulation, uh, something like 18% of the land we want to protect in this country is protected under the, the EU habitats and species regulations. It really worries me that as we leave the EU, we are not necessarily going to have the same kind of mechanism. So I think tough work has to be done just to make sure we do um, continue to get the right, the right mechanisms there. And, and, and that's really tremendously important. Now, the, the other thing which absolutely strikes me as being a sort of foreign office foreign office objective is, is Brazil. Uh, of course, everybody talks about Brazil. And, and we've heard Mr. Bolsonaro recently saying he's 10 billion. I think we have to be we have to be ready to work with Brazil. We have to we have to be ready to say, look, the money has to be made available. And our team in Brazil has to say to Mr. Bolsonaro, yeah, we are ready to cooperate. I say, I say that I went to Brazil also in the, in, in the 50s, look, when, when the Amazon covered about half the country. Yeah, absolutely vital. Um, these, are, these are the things which are, which, which are out there, which are out there. Today. And I think that, uh, you know, it's wonderful to have a chance, you know, to be here with this, with this wonderful, wonderful group of people. Implementation, that's, not, that's the answer to your question. Getting the commitments out then is, is wonderful, but making sure we deliver them by hard, hard work on the ground. And that has, to that has to begin at home. I want to be sure, for example, you know, that we are able to say we've not only promised to get 30% of our land protected, but we're, we're well on the way to doing so. And, it, and it's real protection. Well, I don't, I don't want to go on because Zach's got to go. And we, I want to be sure that Zach has plenty of time to uh, respond. Thanks so much.
Stanley, thank you. Um, Zach, a couple of minutes before uh, you go. Um, are there any points? It would be great to get your response to, to some of those points, particularly around uh, the challenges of implementation and, of course, um, those tensions uh, with the, uh, the UK's future trading relationship. Yeah, so just very quickly on implementation, Stanley's right. I mean, we can set any, don't forget the New York Declaration on Forests was that we would halt deforestation by 2020. We're still losing, as I said, 30 football fields worth of forest every minute. So it, it didn't work. Um, so, you know, you can set any number of targets and if we don't mean them, then nothing's going to happen. The Leaders Pledge for Nature, I think is the most radical such declaration ever signed. Um, and, and I don't just say that because the UK uh, was a big reason it became such a powerful document. And if every country that signed it did what they've signed up to, then we'd be having a very different discussion this time next year. So it's we've got to ensure that countries do what they're supposed to do. And we are beginning to see that in carbon. And one of the reasons for that, and we really are, I mean, the, 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 it's not just net zero commitments, we are seeing plans being set out and, and policies being taken and steps being taken and we're seeing the market respond in a very very rapid way not fast enough but much more than anyone predicted quite recently we don't have that for nature which is why the, one of the key things that we need at the next cbd hosted by china in Kunming, is a, a sort of paris style targets paris style mechanisms for or kyoto style mechanisms for holding countries to the commitments they make um, and okay. even that's not going to guarantee they do what they are committing to doing so <laughs> people need to look at the, the steps per countries are promising look at the uk so we're one of the most nature depleted countries on earth but if you look at the policies we have in place and the laws we either have or are about to bring in through the environment bill it's pretty, there's a pretty clear plan for getting where we need to get to. I'm never going to be satisfied with it, nor would any environmentalist, but, but we are moving forward in leaps and bounds. The finance is there. I think one of the most revolutionary things in the world at the moment is what we're doing to our land use subsidy system. We've got the Nature for Climate Fund, 640 million pounds. We're changing the incentives in many different ways. Um, and we've set ourselves some pretty big targets around peatland restoration. Um, Stanley mentioned, I think, that a quarter or nearly a quarter of our land is currently protected, but it's still very nature depleted. So in order to meet our 30 by 30 target, we're not just going to put rings around new areas to knock it up to 30%. We are committed to ensuring that we restore nature in those areas. So we've committed to restoring half a million hectares, for example, of wildlife rich, rich habitat. That's not going to be new land that's protected. That's existing land that is going to be properly protected, properly restored. And we will need to be held to account for that. So I, I know that I didn't answer. There was another question. I'm very happy to answer it, but I can't remember what it was. I'm so sorry. Um, it was about, just before you go, it was about the UK's future trading relationships. Oh, Obviously, there's, yeah. I think we're going to see this debate. tension between that to carry yeah. on. Yeah, look, there's a big, this is a real, this is a, a tension and, and probably, you know, a, a natural tension. So we are... Um, we are already demanding things in our free trade negotiations that have never been demanded before. We put animal welfare as a criteria. That's no one's ever done that before, to my knowledge. Um, we want to demonstrate that uh, a biodiversity, climate, broader environment are, are, are considerations that can be advanced, not compromised through the pursuit of trade. We've told, uh, announced publicly that our, you know, every country puts its top three priorities in relation to the future agenda of the WTO, and we've put climate change and environment right at the top. No, 
I don't think any other country has done that. Um, so we mean business on this and we have a manifesto commitment that we won't allow future free trade agreements to compromise the standards we've set here. And uh, of course, I'm like you and I guess everyone on this call absolutely determined that we maintain that commitment, that we honor that promise. Um, and I've seen nothing to suggest, of course, there's pressure for us to drop that manifesto pledge, of course. And there's pressure actually on us to do the opposite of all the things I was talking about earlier. There's plenty of vested interest that will much prefer the status quo, but I see nothing to suggest that we're not completely committed to the path that we set out. Um, and I know I am as a minister, but I also know that I, I'm not an isolate within government. I have a lot of support and there are plenty of other colleagues who are just as committed as I am. Thank you so much. I'd love to keep you here, not least to grill you on uh, the news from the, the G7, but I know that you have to go. Thank you so much for joining Thanks, us, Zach. You appreciate your you time. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Well, ca carrying on with the Q&A and opening up to some of the questions that were coming from the floor, I think we might continue on that theme, actually, because we've had a couple of questions here around um, food, diet and better nutrition, which I think is probably aimed at the discussion around sort of dairy and meat farming, and also um, further questions around um, the UK's upcoming trade deal with Australia um, and other discussions we may have in the future with Brazil and Argentina. Um, so perhaps Sanjit, if I could go um, to you first, how are we going to make sure that um, our UK's new trading relationship um, with these countries doesn't uh, undermine our high standards? I think the short answer is we don't compromise on our standards. So whether it's um, you know, animal welfare, um, the environmental standards, uh, that uh, we ensure that they are part of the deal. And I, I think that, um, that it, it, uh, not just be, uh, because of our biodiversity concerns, but if I link it also to our concerns around the climate, uh, that uh, the future trade deals, whether it's the UK doing them with other developed countries or with uh, different types of economies doing deals, that they're compared to deals of the past, that now is the time to have, a, a, whether it's a, we call it a green component, a bio component in all those deals, and just make sure uh, that they are friendly towards those outcomes. Because as we, you know, we mentioned all these big conferences going on this year and our role in that, but we can see a, you know, both COP26, COP15, both all these countries are taking these issues much more seriously than before. And uh, as these countries, whether we are involved or not, but as countries do trade deals, I think now is the time to set out a template that, that makes them green friendly and bio friendly, and that can be done. Thank you. Um, and Amin, turning to you, how does Pakistan handle this tension in its trading relationships? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the, I've been seeing the conversation we are having uh, on the chat box. Uh, I think it's important that uh, we all are not just uh, talking the talk, but are also actually willing to walk the talk. And we need to make sure that, you know, uh, that is happening because it's very important for the world. As I said, you know, the world does not have a choice anymore. And we, we cannot have uh, uh, just talk. Uh, I mean, we, we've been talking on the climate change arena for now over 20 years, and uh, there's very little happening on the ground. Uh, this cannot be uh, repeated in the nature conversation. And I think countries need to be uh, really putting their feet on the ground and trying, trying to make all these things happen. All the conversation about trade and everything else can follow, but I think it is the commitment by the countries that need to be put to the test and put to the ground, which is really important. 
Thank you. That's great. Um, Stanley, do you want to come in with any comments here? I know Katie well, addressed them in your opening remarks. Yes, I, 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 I do. I'd like to talk about China, um, if I might. Of course, China is, is, is the co, um, is the host of, the, of COP15. Um, it's, it's, more, it's more a political point. I just think we have to work with China. And I'd like to think how we can get across some of the ideas we've been talking about today about the ambitions for COP15 better um, to, the, to the Chinese government at a time when, in some areas at least, there's a sort of reticence to deal with China. Do, do, do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, mm. I say to myself, of course, I quite understand the reasons for this reticence. Nevertheless, the overarching um, considerations in terms of climate change and biodiversity are so great that I think we have to find a way through. And I'd quite like to toss this one in um, uh, if anybody wants to, to comment on it. Brilliant, thank you very much. Kate, do you want to add anything? Yeah, just to say that um, that uh, it's really important to publish exactly what we mean by uh, those standards that were in the in that manifesto commitment. Um, so the, the Trade and Agricultural Commission has, we, has recommended that we develop those core standards for trade that set minimum requirements for environment and animal welfare. Um, but the government hasn't yet uh, started developing or published those standards and they need to be published ahead of any Australian deal uh, to make sure that the UK is in the market for high standard food. I mean, Australia has the highest rate of deforestation in the OECD. Uh, the rate of tree cover loss rose by 34% just between 2016 and 2018. And that deforestation is largely driven by the livestock industry. So that although global Britain has to be about trading relationships, it has to be about trading relationships that make us a stronger and more resilient greener nature nation, sorry, one that's leading in agriculture and the industries of the future, not aligning with back markers on climate and nature or making our farmers compete with old, um, old models of farming that are still used elsewhere. As that Goldsmith said at the very beginning, we want to be a leading culture, you know, culture and uh, land in terms of the way that we use our land in terms of the way that we farm in terms of restoring nature. Um, and in order to do that, we need to say, look, these are our standards that we will not uh, go below on in our trade deals. So we want to have a trade deal with Australia. It's just let's publish those standards first and then announce a deal with Australia. Let's not align ourselves to, to people who are, are working in the past. Ruth, can may I um, please do on one of the points that China, uh, on the China point that Stanley rightly has raised? I mean, first of all, he's absolutely right in that the world doesn't deal with the, the challenge of biodiversity and climate change without China. Right? Give you the sheer size of the country, the number of people, the economy, its trajectory for growth, it, it doesn't happen without China. So there are two countries uh, you know, beyond the UK and the role we play, but there are two major countries, two mega countries out there that are absolutely necessary to deal with these problems. All the others required as well, but these two, without these two, it doesn't happen. And that is the US. And of course, that's been huge positive development there. Now we've got a grown up back in the White House. It means we can do business. We can all work together on multilateral issues like this that concern the world. Uh, and then there's China, of course, as Stanley's rightly mentioned. And I do think 
it is absolutely possible to have uh, you know, separate conversations with China. And we are absolutely right to whether we are concerned about our security, to challenge them on huge mass human rights violations. And, and we can do that. And at the same time, talk about climate and biodiversity and get things done. I think from everything that we've seen from China, including with President Xi, that you know, they get uh, the risk of climate change, what it means to their own country, let alone the world. You know, Shanghai won't exist soon if the climate isn't dealt with, if these biodiversity threats aren't dealt with. And uh, China wants to deal with them. And, and, some, uh, and I think if we want to point to something positive quite recent, I thought it was really uh, important in telling that, uh, that uh, John Kerry, was able to, was in Beijing recently talking about climate change, preparing uh, for COP26. Uh, at the same time he was doing that, we know that the, the US has been rightly challenging China on human rights issues and other security concerns, but China's having both conversations at the same time. And I think that's the way to go and it can be done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and I'd like to, well, I'd like to just take a minute to say uh, thank you to um, Amin, who's had to drop from the conversation, um, but thank you to him for his very insightful remarks. And it was incredibly interesting for me actually to learn what um, Pakistan is doing in this area. Um, I'd like to move on actually to a question around um, due diligence and deforestation. Obviously we have um, an obligation in the Environment Bill that large companies will be required to address illegal deforestation in their supply chains. But what can the government do to bear down on instances of legal deforestation? How can we encourage greater action um, without harming um, diplomatic partnerships, which, as we just talked about, are so vital? Stanley, I thought I might come to you first, given your uh, focus on Brazil in your comments. Well, very, ha <coughs> very happy to do that. Yes, I got very heavily involved in the whole deforestation issue way back in 1990, when I was working in the EU, we managed to get the G7 meeting in Houston in, in May or June 1990 to say he wanted a World, a world Forest um, uh, Convention. And we tried to get that in, in Rio in 1992. He didn't get it. He got shot down, particularly by the Malaysians, who ended up with something called um, a, a legal, uh, sorry, non-authoritative document on on forest principles. The point I'm trying to get at is you need to have a definition of what is legal. You might say, well, it's illegal if a government says you, know, you can do it. And that, of course, is much of the problem in, in Brazil as well. A lot of the stuff we don't want to see is nevertheless called legal in Brazil. That is why I think we should absolutely not give up on this notion of really trying to pin down what legal, um, what the legal principles of forestry are, and yes, we've had the, the New York Declaration. It was tremendously important of 2012, and I would therefore say the next big diplomatic step is to make that soft core, soft law declaration into something much harder. So we are able to say, look, it's no no good you saying what you do is legal when it simply is clearly illegal in terms of the international treaty to which you have subscribed. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Kate, I know this is something that WWF have worked um, on because I've been working with your team on the issues. Um, would you like to give some comments? Yes, I'd love to. And uh, we need to make the Environment Bill as strong as possible on this point. Um, and, and that point that Stanley Johnson was just giving us about uh, uh, legal and illegal is, is really important because just asking for um, uh, companies to report on illegal deforestation may cause the sort of perverse incentives that creates weirdly sort of increased deforestation. Um, 
so as we speak, for example, uh, Bolsonaro is, is changing laws to make more deforestation legal. Um, and therefore that might main, mean that we, uh, we, we are inadvertently importing more deforestation into our supply chains through including a target in our environment bill that is that only includes um, uh, a, a sort of discludes rather illegal deforestation. So those words are ex extremely important uh, to get right. We need a deforestation target uh, in the environment bill and, uh, and a ratchet mechanism that allows us to check how that, um, how that target is working. And so that's what we're really looking for in, in the next few weeks and months in the environment bill. I mean, the important thing is here is that UK consumers don't want to be buying chicken uh, that is fed on soy that comes from deforestation in our supply chains. I mean, it's as simple as that. People would be incredibly surprised if they realized as they went home uh, from school and went to a chicken shop outside school to discover that actually that chicken is fed on on soy, which has come from deforested land in, in the Amazon or the Sahado. So it is incredibly important that we get this right. And that, as Stanley Johnson said, those words on illegal and uh, illegal um, are very important to get to get right. Thank you. Sajid, what's your view on this? Does the, do the current provisions in the Environment Bill go far enough or do you think they should be strengthened? Look, my, my view would be as follows and just really hard, make the following sort of obvious point, but I just think sometimes policymakers you know, miss it, is that biodiversity doesn't recognise international borders, right? Biodiversity loss, you know, there's no such thing as borders, right? So take uh, what's happening in Brazil, the deforestation, uh, it's uh, the, the so-called illegal deforestation that uh, it, it is, and I'm bringing this back deliberately to Das Gupta and what he and his team are focused on, is that so much of this is driven by economics because the, 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 the real cost of that biodiversity loss is not represented in the economic trades that are taking place at the moment when someone is, 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 is you know, taking from that forest and selling those logs or, or you know, trying to create um, the, uh, your profit uh, from that. And, uh, and, and, and what we need to do, and if, if we properly value natural capital, is because we're the whole world is affected, we're all affected by that deforestation. It's not just a clearly, it's not clearly a Brazilian only issue. Uh, then we need to make sure that if we don't want people to do that, maybe there's the, the time now to think about how we can pay to preserve uh, the rainforest. And you know, the economics uh, that are driving this, it all needs to be looked at again. And it comes back to, I think, the point I, I, I started with, if I may, is that we need to uh, measure uh, natural capital properly uh, you know, around the world, not just in Britain, in green international standards and that. And if we can start doing that, then start valuing it properly, then we can understand the economics around it, both incentives uh, to use uh, nature, but also disincentives to preserve uh, you know, to, to try and create those dissentives that will lead to the preservation of nature. And, uh, and, and there's a lot in the Dasgupta report on this. He actually talks about uh, deforestation in Brazil and gives examples about how the, the, how the international community could actually raise funds to protect that. Um, but there's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to this, but I think it all comes back down to valuing it properly in the first place. And, and a lot of that is down to natural capital accounting. Thank you. I'd like to turn to a question now on how do we build on the momentum from the G7 uh, that Zach alluded to in his comments and the leaders pledge, pledge sorry, for Nature Coalition to ensure we have a positive outcome at CBD? And what does a positive outcome at CBD look like? Kate, can I come to you first? 
yeah, if I can, I may, I just want to follow up briefly before I do that um, uh, in terms of what uh, Sajid Java just, just went through. I, I completely agree about the natural capital accounting um, because what we measure, uh, you know, starts to define what we then do, um, but it needs to be more integrated into our economic system um, because currently GDP is the only thing we measure um, and the only thing that is debated and seems to have importance, which means that, you know, for example, you could uh, take all the fish out of the sea in one year um, and and then you would end up with a with fantastic GDP for that year because uh, you're you're but at the same time the following year you wouldn't have any fish, so there's no there's no sort of accounting of the of the risk in that, um, so it's really really important that the finance sector um, starts to take account of these things. So it, let's sort of the TCFD announcement for example recently. Um, allows the finance sector to report or, or will enable the finance sector and the business sector to report on um, their risk in this area, but hasn't yet, we haven't yet moved to the place where um, there's actually plans to follow up on that. So, for example, um, we are now calling, as I said, for the finance sector to be aligned to 1.5 degrees at the end of this year. Uh, the UK could have the first financial sector to do so um, because just reporting on your risk isn't going to be enough. You've got to be mandated to, to make a plan and then tackle it. We've only really got eight years to turn this around in. It's not going to be enough just to, to, to report, to do that natural capital accounting. We've got to then take action on that, um, which is why following up on uh, mandatory risk reporting is so important. Um, in terms of the CBD, um, it's obviously a, a really important moment um, and what we need to do in the CBD is make sure that that 10 year um, uh, target is, is in there, that, uh, that the 10 year target, not just to preserve the nature that we've got left, but start to restore it, is put into that. And the UK is already, I know, working hard in their negotiations, putting all its diplomatic might behind making sure that that target is in the CBD um, but but those negotiations are currently ongoing and it's not currently in there at the moment. So in order for it to be stronger, it needs to be in there. We also need to have a ratchet mechanism in the CBD so that um, they're just like with the COP, there's an opportunity for countries to come back and commit to more. Currently, that's not in there um, either. So we are in a, a difficult situation in order for COP26 to be a success. CBD, uh, COP15 also needs to be a success. Thank you. And Stanley, given the high stakes, how do you think we can build on the current momentum? Okay. Can you still hear me? Yes, we can. Yep. Brilliant. So I can hear, I, can, I can't see any of you now, but nevertheless, I can hear you. We can see you. <laughs> so. now, now, okay. I think, as I, I, I just had an idea as we speak, what is really moving the climate issue at the moment? It is the idea of carbon border taxes because it seems so absolutely obvious, so absolutely inevitable, and we are going to see more and more um, people going for that, including organizations like, like, like the, um, the G7. Now, it does seem to me that we need to have exactly the same principle also as far as biodiversity is concerned, and I think it would not be beyond the wit of diplomats and scientists and researchers and academics to devise some, something equivalent to carbon border taxes for biodiversity. So you have BBT, biodiversity border taxes as well. I just toss that idea out because I think in the end, as people have said several times here today, in the end, it's the, it's, it's the cost of this and the, the fact that there are free riders out there. That is what's driving the carbon issue. And it's the, it's the sense of free riders, which also needs to, to, to drive the biodiversity issue. And I think we can get there if we start focusing on that too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, 
that is a very interesting um, point, I think. And we are fortunate enough to have a former Chancellor of the Exchequer on this call. Sajid, what's your view on this very interesting proposal? I, I, I think Stanley and uh, and what Kate uh, said before that, I think they're both right uh, on this point, on the, the on, on what Stanley has just said about measurement of biodiversity and uh, the example he gave with climate change, but also um, Kate's point, uh, which I also want to very much agree with, where she talked about GDP and, uh, and, and highlighting that it, for understandable reasons, all countries in the world, they measure their economic progress by pointing to their GDP as perfectly, it's a very valuable measure. It's, uh, it's, it's really important, serves a huge purpose and there's no taking away from that. But the one thing it does not do in the, in the, in the, the giveaway is the name, it's, uh, it's gross domestic product, the change in gross domestic product, it doesn't measure depreciation. And, and Kate gave a, a, a good example of that. We were talking earlier about the rainforest, you know, you could boost your GDP by, you know, uh, deforesting at a much higher rate and the, the GDP might look good, but you've destroyed a lot more natural capital in the process. And this is actually at the heart of the Dasgupta review. And, uh, and if we're going to do this, what you need is every country needs to properly measure its, as I've said before, its natural capital, not just GDP, publish that number annually, show the depreciation in it. And it needs to be done not just at the official level by the you know, official statisticians um, that you, for that nation, but as, as Kate has rightly pointed to, by banks, by central banks, including uh, private banks, uh, and much more uh, broadly as well. And, and to take your, uh, your, your question, Ruth, earlier, um, when you began this segment about what could we see at CBD uh, that would really sort of make a difference, uh, I think an agreement at CBD, an international agreement that requires all countries, uh, give, gives, give, gets a commitment from them all to properly start measuring natural capital, showing the changes each year, you know, which will probably start by showing depreciation, although what we all want to see is an improvement in enhancement natural capital, but at least getting that measurement right and having agreed standards on how to do that internationally, I think would be a huge step forward. When we can start measuring it, then we can see the true impact of the policies we implement to protect biodiversity. Thank you. I'd like to turn to um, maybe a more domestic issue here raised by Monica in the chat. How do you reconcile build, 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 um, mostly on greenfield and agricultural land with nature recovery? Are you convinced by the arguments that claim we can double nature while simultaneously concreting over thousands of acres? Sadly, I'm going to stay with you for the first answer on this one. Um, what's your view? I think I think one thing you try to do is a government should try to do, starting, of course, this includes our government, is that when we are um, uh, proposing, let's say, a new infrastructure project, a, a, a new road, um, the, uh, rail links, and that uh, when we assess the what's called the cost benefit the analysis of that that it includes the impact of natural capital it doesn't at the moment right it, and to a very small extent it does and so in the uk you know for example the, the treasury uses a, a a set of rules which are collectively called the green book and uh, the the chancellor has rightly he's uh, been changing those rules reviewing them and that's all uh, you know perfectly sensible thing to do but what we should be doing in that process is also a, a inserting rules around measuring the impact on nature of all these projects, building projects, road projects, and doesn't mean to say you shouldn't do them, but what it forces you to do is to look at properly and transparently the impact 
on the natural world of that project. And, and sometimes, of course, it will be perfectly justified. And sometimes you might think again and find a much more eco-friendly way, let's say, of achieving the same aim. So I think you know, that kind of approach is an essential part of this. Great, thank you. Um, there's a couple of questions I want to get to in the next couple of minutes. So I'm gonna go straight to the next one. Um, I'm gonna address that to Kate. Got a question here from Henry. If we included natural capital in our economics as recommended by Dasgupta, how would that affect the cost of living, e.g. food prices? Mm. Really interesting question. If I can just go a little bit back actually to the fiscal framework um, uh, issue that, that Sajid Javid was just talking through. Um, I think what's really important is that in order to build back greener, we have a real holistic view of where our money should be spent and, and what we need to be able to do that. I mean, I do know that uh, our Prime Minister is looking at the fiscal framework at the moment. Uh, what about a net zero test and the equivalent for nature that would allow us to check where our spending is going? Because actually it's not going to cost that much money to tackle the climate and nature crisis. It's what, it, what, we, what it's about is about moving and shifting our, the money that we have already into the right places. So, for example, not spending on a coal mine. I saw that was in, in one of the Q&A, but instead spending on um, vertical farms that would reduce um, the, the space and use of, um, of land to free that up for housing and to free that up also for, for, for nature. The important thing is that we, um, we tackle these things in a way that doesn't... Um, give us a, a sort of a debt for the future future generations to pay in terms of housing. And the one thing we need to look at is balance all of these elements together through a fiscal framework that takes account of the value of nature and uh, the value of our climate alongside uh, our, the human capital and social capital that we have. Thank you. Now, Stanley, you proposed um, a very interesting idea and I'm going to put another interesting uh, one to you from Peter in the chat. What are the obstacles to increasing taxes on greenhouse gas emissions and using those revenues to protect habitat, biodiversity and nature-based solutions for carbon sequestration? You're on mute, Stanley. Oh. Still on mute, I'm afraid. <laughs> All right, I tell you what, while Stanley fig figures that out, Sajid, I'm gonna go to you instead. What is your view? No, I think that we've, we've rightly got a whole bunch of carbon taxes uh, ready. Oh, Stanley's back, maybe. Actually, oh, quick, Stanley, Stanley, over to you. Quickly <laughs> and then Sajid, <laughs> one minute each, come on. <laughs> yeah. oh, very quickly, it, it, has, it has to be done. And the metric part is is absolutely vital. In, in, in many ways, the climate people have had it easy because we have been able to measure emissions and we have been able to relate the emissions to the increase in the in the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. Not so easy to do it for nature. It absolutely has to be done if we're going to get the fiscal framework right and if we're going to get the, the tax the, the tax measures right, which I which I said so before. And and once we do that, then I think it will be possible to move forward. Thank you. Thank you. Go on, Sajid. Yeah, if I may, if we're about to finish, my final comment is I think just this is so important to this issue that biodiversity loss, it has an economic uh, cause, it has economic consequences, 
and therefore it requires an economic solution. And that's why I think that this work that we refer to, the Scapter Review, uh, the, the, that work, the economics, understanding that, the economics of biodiversity is absolutely essential to, for anyone that cares about this issue. Thank you. Right, well, I've given myself about one minute to wrap this up. So I just want to say thank you to all our panelists for joining us today and for everybody watching and those who are contributing uh, in the chat and with questions as well. I think it just shows what a huge range of issues um, that we have here, that there is some really exciting work that's going on and some brilliant momentum that we need to build on, but still an awful lot left to do. Um, so thank you very much for joining us and it will be great to see where we take some of the ideas that have been floated this afternoon. Thank you.